giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Alex Stern, startup founder, entrepreneur, mentor, investor, advisor. Alec, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So most people will probably have heard of Constant Contact (laughs) (laughs) who are listening to the show because it's, especially in the Boston area, one of the big success stories. But that's probably the best way to get into this conversation is to say that you're one of the three original founders of Constant Contact. Sure. Yeah, that's true. So thanks for coming into the studio today and talking with me. Yeah, happy to. Yeah, there were three of us in an attic when we started. Yeah. Whose attic was it? So it was my co-founder, Randy. Mm -hmm. We were in Brookline, and um, I like to say we're on the East Coast, so we're in an attic. If we're on the West Coast, we would have been in a garage. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have one, so. So how did you know the two other founders when you got started? So Randy and I were put together through a mutual friend in in the tech community who had said, hey, he's working on some things, and my sort of bench strength was around go to market and business development and channels and strategy. So he had really just said, I'd love it if you guys would meet, you could possibly uh, help him a bit. And then as we got to talking, you know, there was a real strong passion around small business. We both had been working and circling that space for a while, myself with a couple of other startups prior and and him with consulting and and a startup. So, you know, real good mind meld around, Mm -hmm. you know, how do we level the playing field for small business and help them on the front end of things? We both worked prior on the back end, like payment systems and, you know, kind of the Mm -hmm. early days of e-commerce platforms. And and this was on the front end around marketing. And Mm -hmm. so leveling that playing field for the small business against their big competitors and giving them a sort of a self-service tool was sort of the original premise. And it it ended up being exactly what we brought to Mm -hmm. market initially and had success with. I can only assume that you thought it would be successful because otherwise you wouldn't have done it. But was there something in particular where you said either the timing is right or our expertise or with our powers combined? Was there something that just really said, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. If we think about from our perspective mm-hmm. and then from, say, the target market, the small businesses perspective, from our perspective, it was, you know, the bigger competitors are really just getting going, like Amazon and others, where they had, you know, agencies and they had tech and marketing teams and, and there were enterprise level tools. So they had a lot of stuff available to them and we're starting that marketing engine and one-to-one personalization and all the things that they were doing to really market out to their customers mm-hmm. about the discovery and the buying journey, but also after buying and sort of staying and nurturing them and staying in touch with them after. And there wasn't really anything for the small business. So from our perspective, it was that premise of you know kind of coming up with something to level that playing field and provide it so it's really sort of easy to use and self-service. So they didn't have to know technology. They didn't have to mm-hmm. know HTML. They just had to know what they wanted to say, when they wanted to send it, and whom they wanted to send it to. And we would sort of try to handle the rest. Mm-hmm. When we went out to small businesses you know, and asked them what are their challenges and what were they looking for, they were saying things like, you know, I'd love to stay top of mind with my current customers, would love to drive some additional business with them, I need revenue, I need new customers, and all the things that they were sort of saying were supporting our premise to kind of what we wanted to do to help them and allow them to stay top of mind and, and so forth. And then when you go to the third sort of audience, which was, you know, potential investors and venture capitalists and so forth, you know, when we would go around, we heard a lot of no's. Mm-hmm. Like the door got shut on us many times and I like to say, and no means not now. 
you know, I never took it as a no because it would be pretty defeating with all the no's we were mm-hmm. getting. Just because the point that nobody can sell to small businesses and you can't go door to door and the only ones that can really do it are companies like Intuit and ADP and, and others that had a real kind of ordered sales channel and so right. forth. That may be a direct segue into what I was going to At the time, what were you feeling was the biggest risk to success? Like, what were you worried about? Was it that? Like, how do you actually scale to small businesses? Yeah. So starting out, I think the first thing was, could we provide a self-service and easy-to-use mm-hmm. tool to small businesses that they could adopt and use and feel comfortable? So I think that was sort of the first challenge when just sort of the offering. And, and then, of course, you have to have an eye on scale. You know, as early as you are in a startup, you know, you're going to get asked the question, hey, mm-hmm. great idea. It's a large market. Seems like there's a, a big problem, not maybe served as well as it could be and how it's being executed for folks today. But how are you going to scale it? I mean, it's a question that you get asked from most people, whether you're going to get funding or loans or, you know, support from strategic partners or anyone. So we had to have an eye out to that. And so that was clearly on the forefront. And so we knew we couldn't go door to door selling to small business and we were getting that validated by everyone we spoke to. But we had to figure out how we could scale that and what was the scale path, uh, Mm -hmm. which we were able to see early, but it took some time obviously to get that flywheel going. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned you are on the business side of things. Yeah. (laughs) What was the makeup of the rest of the team, the other two founders and then early people? Yeah, so both were very deep on technology. So Randy being the first one in with with a technical idea, Margaret, the second person, and also extremely, you know, really deep in terms of technology and software architecture and Mm -hmm. just having the vision for building it and then how it could scale as an app. And Mm -hmm. so we had that sort of covered, both had a good eye toward the business side of things as well. It wasn't as though there was that division of, well, they're, you know, they're just focused on technical stuff. You know, understanding the customer and understanding from, I guess, from their experience, you know, how they were going to be using it and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was either, what was yours or what is the right amount of interplay, in your opinion, between figuring out what the core offering is and talking to users and figuring that out and then the sales side of it? And what is the right amount of interplay there? You know, certainly early on, it's, I mean, you have to be lock and step, mm-hmm. you know, and it can't be something where it's a telephone game. So I was on the go to market and on the business side of things. So I'll go out and talk to small businesses and get their, their feedback. And we were not in stealth mode. You know, we would try to build something and get it in the hands of folks, even if it was just a prototype to demo, show, mm-hmm. show them what we're, we're thinking of doing. Uh, as early as you can to get that feedback from your target customer is important. And it can't be something where then I come back and then communicate to you know someone on the development side, hey, this is what we need. They have to hear it too and feel mm-hmm. it and see it. And so we were, you know, we were all in that early discovery phase and getting in front of the target customer to understand that because you have to hear it from them and from their perspective to really, I think, go off and then visualize how how you're going to lay this out and then to prototype it and then build it to scale it. Mm-hmm. So how long was it from when you had that first conversation and said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to join and we're going to work together on this to when you were serving the first customer? Yeah. So we, the first conversation didn't, wasn't really set up for us to team up. We, you know, we had a lot of philosophical conversations about our target audience and their needs. And, you know, like a lot of people were really servicing them in a lot of other places, as I mentioned, like payment systems and mm-hmm. websites turning into e-commerce platforms to all that was just really kind of getting going. And 
There were no real sort of leaders in the e-commerce space in the day. There were a bunch of uh, smaller folks with, you know, equal number of customers and, and growing. There was enterprise tools, but they just, you know, couldn't come down to, to a small business. They usually needed a, you know, sort of a development team or a marketing mm-hmm. team to run them. And then also the cost and price points were too high. And so understanding that we just needed to kind of bring this down market into the hands of a small business that was priced accordingly, that was self-service and easy to use. If they wanted to self-serve and use it on their own, they could or potentially get someone else in the mix to help them. Yeah. Do you remember how long it took to get your first customer? We're building out some things. We we didn't Mm -hmm. have a finished product. We had some uh, sort of features, if you will, that you could sort of play with that we got in the hands of folks, you know, early Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. But it was about a year and a half or so. You know, we were one of the first two then ASP, now SaaS Mm -hmm. offerings on the IBM platform, and which, you know, was just... We had, we had a sort of other challenges that don't exist today. If you're right. bringing out a SaaS offering, there's a lot of platforms available to right. roll it out. We had to trailblaze and create that. So mm-hmm. we were putting it on a CD you know, 18 <laughs> years ago or so. We should take a little tangent. People think about how easy it is to start a SaaS recurring billing right. <laughs> software. You throw it on Heroku or even AWS, which Heroku is on top of. The ecosystem 18 years ago was now, now 20 now yeah. 20 yeah. was completely different right in terms of hosting and even just stripe didn't exist like all of these things didn't exist you would have had to do all of that from scratch right so imagine the dial-up phone <laughs> right right <laughs> for those those in the audience that are younger like what is that mm-hmm. so there were a lot of things that didn't exist which you know also created just some some challenges but i guess that's sitting here today and looking back playing sort of Monday morning quarterback, we could say, well, wow, you know, you have all these things available today. Like we didn't know what we didn't know because right. it wasn't available. So we had to create our solution. We had to put it on a CD. We had to deliver it to somebody to, to put on a computer, to fire it up and be able to do it, uh, what what was needed. And so that, that had its own set of challenges, mm-hmm. especially early on when, you know, I'd literally drive a CD to, uh, I went out and got four customers, you know, the initial four. Mm-hmm. Two were direct, you know, small businesses. And the other two were tied to what would be considered channel partners. Um, one was a marketing agency and the other one was a web development firm. And so the light sort of went off early on about channels as, as, mm-hmm. a, as an opportunity, which is also part of my background. So I would drive those out, you know, deliver those. They would fire them up and be able to, to use that. Uh, two were doing it on behalf of a client and the other two were doing it directly. So it was a good mix of the user you know, whether it be direct or through an intermediary. So it was probably a year and a half or so we started, you know, bringing things to them to try and to get feedback. And of course, things break. I deliver the CD. I come back to the office and like, oh, we found a bug. You got to bring another CD out to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could have put 100,000 miles on the car (laughs) for every time I had to go and bring things back to them Mm -hmm. um, after we found something having just come back from their office. And so we just kept sort of iterating and creating you know, in those in those early days, and and we we got a lot of great feedback, you know, from those initial sort of four customers that I mentioned, and then you know, of course, shortly thereafter, within probably at uh, the two and a half year mark, we were then you know one of the first two SaaS offerings mm-hmm. uh, on the IBM platform, and which was interesting at the time because you know, vendors didn't know how to how to bill you for sort of what would be considered sort of rented mm-hmm. software, or, you know, create once and share many. And so it was an interesting conversation for billing and how, like, how much they would charge us for every customer using the service 
which in their mind would be hundreds of thousands of dollars buying their platform versus us wanting to rent it for $15, $20 a month right. per client. Right. So we had to get aligned with how we could creatively work out something where we're paying for you know the platform, if you will, and then sharing it with many. Mm-hmm. So even though you got a lot of no's, you eventually did get some investment, right? Yeah, we did. How important was it for you to have customers that were going to pay you? You know, some companies are starting out and they're saying, it's all about getting market share, all about eyeballs. We're going to lease the software for free. We're going to get as many people using it as possible and we'll figure out right. the revenue later. Is that how you approached it? Or That sounds like a West Coast comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to pick sides here on coasts, but clearly, you know, uh, we had to be pragmatic and, and have a path to revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did start a free trial, but with some triggers that move you to paid just so that people can get it in-house, you know, use it, you know, have 60 days to, to play with it and work with it and get familiar. You know, there's a lot of things that came into play later for how we supported them in that process. Mm-hmm. But we were charging initially for the service, and then move, once it moved on to SaaS, we could do the free to, with a move to paid. And so our first monies in were kind of a, right around the 20-month mark, you know, when we took in our initial uh, round of funding, which then took some of the pressure off for us to, you know, be able to build the team further and just start to develop, you know, faster, iterate faster with with mm-hmm. more folks, obviously, to create the offering that ultimately was what we would be, be bringing to market. And of course, the go-to-market strategy as well. When you're working with startups nowadays or, or providing advice, there is that dynamic around giving what you're doing away because money's not an issue because you've taken a bunch of investment. How do you help a new company figure out the right way to handle that? I'm fine with with free to some number of customers, you know, where you're you're bringing them in, you're getting their feedback, and there's sort of a little bit of a give and get there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to give this to you and we're going to be here and support you, mm-hmm. but we also want to learn from you. Mm-hmm. The first thing on that I would say is don't go to the people you know, your family, friends, businesses you buy from or whatever your target market mm-hmm. is. Go to complete strangers because they'll be brutal and they'll mm-hmm. be honest with you, probably more so, uh, which I did. The four that we got, I didn't know prior and got was able to get that really important sort of feedback early on. And with a couple partners in the mix of the web developer and the marketing agency, you know, they were clear to give mm-hmm. that feedback. And they had an eye toward not only for the one client, but potentially other clients, which, you know, is uh, also another thing that pointed to sort of places to scale. And so I think it's important to, you know, get some number of customers on board. You know, I would always put a value on it, like this mm-hmm. costs X, but we'll, you know, we'd love to, to offer it to you and not charge you that per se for some period of time and in exchange for, you know, feedback. Mm-hmm. Just giving something away, you know, say I think loses the value of right. what it is. And so always have a value on it, whether you're going to charge them, officially charge them for it or not. So you mentioned channels and finding that the agency ended up being a good channel. In general, just so we're clear, like, how do you define a channel? Sure. So... I could spend a day on this talk and do often uh, when I go around the country speaking. But the thing about channels and, and sort of where's the channel in my business, I would challenge any business out there that there's always going to be a channel strategy available. Unless if you're an enterprise level solution and, and charging hundreds of thousands of dollars per year for that solution, there's still channels. Mm-hmm. You know, If you're down selling to, in our case, small businesses, you know, walking down Main Street, they're all prospects but we wouldn't have the army of salespeople to get to them. Who are the trusted resources that are working with small businesses in local communities and as sort of one just aspect of channels? And, and I sort of challenge everybody to consider 
where are your target customers hanging out? Who's influencing them? What trusted resources are working with them? What complementary services are they using that could potentially be a partner to recommend or refer or bundle or integrate you into the mix? When Constant Contact started after those four customers, we were 100% channels. Mm-hmm. You know, We didn't go door to door selling a small business. We found that there'll be 15 to 20 categories of channel partners that any business will will have. And if you start to sort of build out a channel market map and think about strategic value and revenue, you know, kind of do an X, Y axis and sort of plot some on there. The one that everyone shares is association and member orgs. Every single business, no matter what you do, there's local, regional, national associations, there's meetups. Your audience is meeting uh, weekly somewhere. Mm-hmm. And how do you get yourself in the mix to work with them? And if you offer value to the customers or members of that organization and you have thought leadership or best practices or there's something you're doing that's unique, you know those organizations would love to have you tell their audience because they're paying a member fee to be part of that organization. Mm-hmm. And if you can bring value then they see that that organization has brought a great new offering to them, and it just further strengthens their paying the member fee for that organization. And so think about how you can get in the mix with best practices and thought leadership. So that's one out of sort of 15 every business should have as a minimum of categories. When Constant Contact sold, you know, there's probably 40 or 50 channel categories of partners that we would work with. And some of it got even more granular. If you look in a vertical, you know, if you say like a restaurant, you know, it could be the POS system. If you say right. nonprofit, it could be the donor management system. Mm-hmm. Places where you can maybe plug in or be a complement to something else that's a real valuable tool for them to run the business mm-hmm. where you can, you know, potentially be part of. And you could be a part of the architecture and the platform, or you could be on the front end like we were to potentially take the customer data and be able to then market back out to them and stay top of mind and keep in touch and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious listening to you that you think channels are an important part of any startup strategy and scaling strategy. Should you have to pay for that? If you are going after a channel and it seems like we're going to have to pay to get into this, is that worth it? So I would say that there's a give and get. Mm-hmm. Right. And so case of associations, you know, they just want to get that thought leadership and the best practices. And oftentimes it's not about money. It's just mm-hmm. just offer some value add to our members. Could it be a white paper or something on how the technology will help them grow the business or right. whatever it may be? You know, it might be a, a customized webinar. There are some that want you to offer the members a little bit of a benefit. So maybe it's a slight discount to the members because they signed up through that organization's link. Mm-hmm. There are some that may want money, but most, mostly it's you know, the former of what, I, what right. I mentioned. As far as the other channels, you know, it will vary. You know, what's the give and get? You know, mm-hmm. Some will want potentially a referral fee or some may want kind of a one-time bounty, which is a little bit higher than, say, a referral fee for you know, a paid client. They may want a revenue share, you know, Mm -hmm. and so when asked the question, is it worth it? You know, I always say to a startup, like, go go figure out what's your cost of acquisition. Like, Mm -hmm. how much does it cost you to get the next customer? And you have a lot of channels today, if you're doing pay-per-click and display ads and and other methods of marketing, you know, you have a cost. And so, you know, I just talked to one the other day, and so they said it costs us $300 to get the next client through those normal means of marketing. And so I said, would you be willing to spend that 300 through another channel or source 
to get another client? And they're like, of course. So then you say, okay, now I have $300 to work with. Mm-hmm. How would I distribute that back to somebody? And you could say, look, if you get us the first 50 clients, we'll give you a, 100 per client. When you go 51 to mm-hmm. 250, you get you know 150 or $200. And like you can play with that to work it to your advantage for sort of scale. And, and you could require of that partner, hey, we'll pay you when they stay three months. Right. So you can recoup back your cost. And if they leave, then you're not under underwater with that. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a play there. If anyone does anything where they're giving a revenue share or a cut that's ongoing, mm-hmm. that gift that keeps on giving, people always worry about that because what happens the next year or what about in three years? They're not marketing us anymore and we're still paying them. And so as long as the customer stays a customer, they stay a partner and you're going to keep paying them, then you have to put in things in the mix around annual commitments. Mm -hmm. So if they continue to deliver for you, you're happy to pay them whatever that prior clients, you know, revenue share, but they need to be bringing new business. And if they don't, you bring it down or you eliminate that mm-hmm. past revenue share. Mm-hmm. So, so you again, you can gauge in setting up that structure what works best for you and the business, and not less, they don't always, always have to dictate that for you. Yeah. If there isn't an upfront cost, and it only costs you something if a customer actually comes from it, that's a fairly good position to be in, right? Like, Because yeah. if we do this, and we become a partner with them, and we are presenting at this thing, and nothing comes from it, all we lost was our time. We didn't necessarily lose money. Correct. So so that gets to what I would call marketing touches. And mm-hmm. so any agreement or anything you would put in place with any partner, including associations, must include marketing touches. And so those touches would be at launch and then ongoing. And so at launch, it'd be like, we want to announce that we're partners. We want to you know, do some campaigns to drive them to us, well, whether then the partner would deliver those campaigns on your behalf. And then there's ongoing. Like there needs to be consistent marketing touches that you agree to in a relationship up front. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes someone's like, oh, I just want to get this signed and they're going to be a huge partner for us. And so you sign something and then they say, well, we'll move you over to the marketing team to talk about you know, how they'll promote the offering. And then you get to the marketing team and they're like, hey, glad you're a new partner. Our marketing calendar is booked for 18 months. Mm-hmm. We'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm. So you have to have it built in up front, have to have that commitment. And if they won't market you out to their base, then you're kind of thinking about it being a partnership that's going to go nowhere. Right. Unless it's so strategic and the name is so good because it it'll help you get 10 other great partners, mm-hmm. you might say, okay, well, we'll, we'll do it anyway. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, in this give and get, there has to be a commitment to get in front of the customer base, and it has to happen over time. I like to sort of use the analogy of these partners have shiny new object syndrome. So they mm-hmm. sign up with you today and they're all excited and they start marketing you. And then three months from now, they find another thing that they're hot on mm-hmm. and they forget about you. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have something to kind of fall back on about those marketing touches that are ongoing, then you'll just get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I imagine that there are times where you start working with a partner or through a channel and it's just not working for some, for some it's just not resulting in actual customers. At the point, do you sort of, oh, you've got your 15 or your 40 and you say it's time to move on or do you keep at it? So the first thing I would say is as you're signing on partners, I wouldn't cry wolf about every partner you signed because mm-hmm. you're going to go to 
you know, your exec team. You're going to go to from sales and business development goes to the dev team. We got another partner. We got another partner. There are some that are not going to ever do anything. The ones you expect to do a lot will do little. And the ones you least expect to do something probably will do a lot. Mm -hmm. Like you just don't know. And it's oftentimes, you know, you have to sort of lean into it and figure that out. And also when you get to a category, you might pick an association and they do nothing and say associations don't work. And I challenge you to go get another one because mm -hmm. you'll find that, that it probably will work. And so, you know, as you build into your agreement, you would have check-ins, you know, that you would, you know, every three months or six months where you would check in with the partner to see how it's going and, and have a sit down and discuss how things are going. That leads to a lot of interesting conversations. First, if you have any success with them or you've signed some clients and you have a case study or someone's so happy and you share that with them, oftentimes the re reaction is, how do we get more of them? Yeah. Let's pour gas on this partnership. That's amazing. And if you have a lot of success, you know, sometimes upper management may not know it and you could produce reports, you know, kind of the network effect of how successful it's been. When you share those things, you know, then they're like, wow, we got to do more. Yeah. In instances when they're not doing something, sometimes it's just they're never going to do anything, mm -hmm. can't get out of their own way. And other times it's just, you know, they might have some people switching deck chairs, people leaving, you know, other mm -hmm. things got in the way. So it's just sitting down just to uh, remind them that you're there and that there's this great opportunity and you have your moment to sort of present to them again why this is such a great opportunity and it, and it usually can wake them up. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't rule anyone out, and I wouldn't cry wolf too much, mm -hmm. um, you know, until you start to see success and then point to that partnership to share with your board or the investors or, yeah. you know, because you're going to sign a bunch and you've got to figure out which categories work for you, specific partners to categories, and then how do you get more like them in that persona of whether it's an association or a, you know, a vertical app or a complementary service or a product or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that really attacking this, it might not be second nature to a lot of founders, and you should be upfront about it with these touch points and that kind of thing in a very pretty structured way that sounds like it comes from experience. Yeah. <laughs> Learned the hard way. And that it wouldn't be sort of the natural tendency of a founder who's like super excited to sign up yeah. the next partner and is like, you know, not worried about the details and that kind of thing. I think maybe speaking from experience personally, like there's a mode of that. It's like, we got the partner, but we didn't really right. set it up for success. Yeah, you have to visualize what success looks like and mm -hmm. then back it up to when you're even talking about it upfront and the agreement and getting buy-in and commitment to do the things that will make it successful, like marketing touches, yeah. like those check-ins, like some step up to where they maybe make more if they do more, and volume commitments in, uh, specifically. So all of that can be set up up front and uh, will just, just help you get closer to success. I think the, the key point in all of this is that if anyone, including investors or whoever it may be, said, well, how, great, how are you gonna scale this? You know, you, you have two salespeople, or one and a half salespeople, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and you know they can only do so much in a day. And you know the answer is not we'll hire fifteen more salespeople. You know that's just major expense, and and you may not have figured out exactly how much they'll be able to generate in a week, a month, a year, and what what that would look like in revenue. If you have, that's great. In some businesses, it's just like they're going to do X for us, so we just get two X, three X, four X by bringing more people in. Mm -hmm. Channels tends to be the area to show the scale because you get that uh, one-to-many and you're leveraged off of other people and you, you're going to be in front of your target audience as much as possible. And in the case of Constant Contact, we, at the peak, I mean, we're signing up 200 to 300 partners a month 
from real small local marketing agencies and trusted resources to small business, whether it be uh, you know consultants or or web developers or whoever it may be, all the way up to the big ones that you know had you know millions of small businesses at their their fingertips. So I would just say that whenever someone's going to ask you how you're going to scale, you should have figured out your channel strategy and what are the categories and where are the opportunities, and you'll be able to sort of map that out and show this is a scale opportunity to yeah. work with, work it through others who have the cost of sale, mm-hmm. you know, and you just have to sort of manage them as partners. Yeah, that's great. So are there other things with the early days of Constant Contact or in your work since then that you would point out as like, when I'm thinking about how a business becomes successful, these are the things that I focus on? Yeah, and so... I speak to thousands of startups a year and small businesses through going out and speaking around the, around the country mostly. Plus, you know, being an angel investor and a part of G20 Ventures as a limited partner here in Boston, you know, speaking to startups. And I think the, the first thing I would say is, you know, when I go to an audience, I'll ask for a show of hands, how many in the room, if you had a dartboard and the bullseye was that one core thing in your offering to your target customer, you know your target customer and this is what you're offering them. How many could hit the bullseye? You know, know, know that now. And no more than 5% of the hands go up. Mm-hmm. So that just tells me that either like good entrepreneurs, you know, we're, we're wide-eyed and we see all the things we're going to do to help our target market, and we haven't quite figured out what's the one thing we're going to start with. If you figure out the one thing and you nail it, you know, you're going to get feedback. You're going to, you know, iterate on your product. You're going to get success stories. You're going to probably get some revenue which allows you the flywheel gets going and you could then hire people mm-hmm. and then you can continue to grow and so on. Can I ask, do you think it's better generally to focus on one thing even if you're wrong <laughs> or be like, well, we don't know it yet, so we're still trying to find it? Well, I would see what, which one has the most potential. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say like you may not know it right. out of the gate. Right. But that leads to if you pick the one thing and you start get and you get out and you get, you know, you're getting customer feedback. If you think of lanes on a highway, you might be in a specific lane. Yeah. Your customers are going to tell you if you're in the right lane, shift mm-hmm. a lane. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell you if you need to kind of maybe get off the highway. <laughs> They're going to tell you if you need to get on another highway. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to learn a lot. Right. I think one of the things on the downside of startups and when people have, they're so passionate about their idea, they really have a conviction for what they're bringing to market and they just want to build, 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 and then give it to somebody. If you don't get iterate and get the feedback early, you might be going down the wrong road. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, so you want to make sure you're in front of your customers as early as possible. Don't be in stealth mode and, and don't wait till it's finished and put a nice bow on it. You get out, you get the feedback and you iterate. You know, there are some that have such a conviction of their idea that they work on it so hard, they're the ones that I think in the end will fail. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what anyone tells them, even from customer feedback, they just, I know what they need. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, ultimately, it's going to lead to potentially a miss with that target customer and a lot with a lot of time and money Mm -hmm. cost as well. So I think just get out there, iterate, and you might find that you're on to something. You know, you totally have found a great opportunity but it might be shifting the lane a little bit. And so a lot of the ideas today, a small percent of them are totally revolutionary, revolutionary, and something never been done before. Mm -hmm. We have all the examples, Airbnbs and Ubers and all that. But the rest are something that's out there today, but just isn't really done as well as it could be. And it's now an execution play. 
Mm-hmm. If I can execute and deliver on this, you know, with good customer success better than somebody else, then I have a shot. And there's always room for someone else to come in better, someone who's out there. And so it's really just, it's not a brand new idea. It's just executing on it better. Mm-hmm. And so I think in either case, just getting that early customer feedback will tell you if you're onto something. Mm-hmm. When you have the product and it's out there and you're getting that feedback, are there metrics that you look at or, or anything that you're specifically measuring and saying, these are the things whenever I'm working with a company or working on my own company, I'm paying attention to? Or maybe it's different for every company. Yeah. Each company will have to kind of come up with their handful of metrics that they would be looking at to sort of assess the business and, and its success. The thing I would often tell startups is that the metrics themselves, there's a lot of things that are very ordered. If you're doing anything paid, you know, you can easily get all that data. There's all kinds of hooks and things you can put into to track analytics and stuff on your website and mm-hmm. anywhere in the app, you know, where they spend in time, where they where are they stalling, where are they leaving, where are they coming from. I would just say for any startup, put as many of the hooks in as you can out of the gate. Because what's going to happen is a year from now, you're going to wake up and say, we should be, let's look at this data. We should analyze what, mm-hmm. we don't have the data. Now, now you got to wait to get data. Yeah. So I'd say put the hooks in to capture anything within in-app or, you know, on your website. Make sure you have the data around anything you're paying for. You know, it has to be results driven mm-hmm. and you have to be able to analyze it to say what's the cost per click or right. Or even just or, if you set up all these channels and these partnerships, but then someone says, is this one working? And you can't answer that right. because you're not tracking where they're coming from. That's right. not great either. Yeah. And there's all the uh, managing the touches to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's, there's, you know, first touch, last touch, all touch, and tracking where someone who's come, you know, are they coming back a lot to get some insight to say, you know, it takes somebody three or four kind of touches or visits back to us before they're actually buying. Like, th- this is all good data. And you can also measure, these are online things that are trackable data. There's a lot of offline things that you should measure as well. We lose sight over, well, you know, how many calls did it take? Them calling us, us calling them. How much time did that take? You know, it's three and a half hours. If our time's worth $100 an hour, it's $350 we spent just offline. Plus they did this online. You know, it just helps you with guidance to say, what's it going to cost us to get that next customer, both online and offline? Mm-hmm. But to your point about metrics, I think it's important to, you know, measure everything because, you know, one day you're going to want to use the, that data to help determine directionally if something's working or not and if specific personas of customers are worth it or not. Like you might be spending a lot of extra money on someone who ultimately never buys. Mm-hmm. That would be really useful data to know to pour more gas on those that do. Yeah. You know, it's very frustrating to be in a position where you ask a question and you can't find the answer. And then you say, okay, well, we've put what we need to put in place now to answer this, but it's going to be 30, 60, 90 days before we actually know. So with any startup with this topic and just general questions around the business, the answer must always be, I have a slide for that. You have to know it, you have to have it prepared, and you have to have it. And so when someone's asking you something, you've got to know the ins and outs of all aspects of the business. And this is just one of those things where, I mean, I asked, recently asked one, well, what does it cost you to get the next customer? Like, I don't know. How are you marketing to them today? And they had all ordered ways that they were doing it, but hadn't really tracked back to no per customer cost of acquisition. And Mm. there's some great, great blogs out there and a lot of things around how to even do this at the earliest days of a startup. Mm-hmm. to where you can just see, you know, to your point, what metrics would you start with and then how do you expand from there? Yeah. You're admittedly probably biased, but 
you know, I think a lot of companies start with just those two technical founders that were at Constant Contact and not you, right? right? right. <laughs> but Constant Contact was lucky to get you. Right. Like I said, you're biased. Like, but do you think that that's important for companies to not just have two technical founders who? Yeah, so I think it's very important. Unless mm-hmm. if one of the technical folks is, has a really, you know, has bench strength on the business side and really comfortable on the business side and. You know, would they go out and make sales calls? Would they go out and talk to a strategic partner and feel comfortable and navigating that and being able to ask the tough questions? And if that's the case, then, you know, I'd say great. If not, there has to be someone in, in early on. That, mm-hmm. uh, if there's going to be anything front-facing, you know, you certainly would need somebody to uh, – on the business development side, account management, you know, or whatever it may be mm-hmm. to do that. And just in terms of lucky, I mean, it was the three of us, but we brought in some great, great folks early on. And, you know, when we sold Constant Contact in 2016, the, we had 1,500 people. That well-oiled machine that we had was really off of the backs of some, so many great people. Mm-hmm. So, so while we might have started something, you know, a lot of people jumped in to you know, help as we went through the uh, step-ups for scale. Yeah, yep. that's great. So what are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm actually co-founder of four things at the moment. Mm-hmm which uh, I would never advise anyone listening to do that. <laughs> well, then why pick, are you pick doing one, it? Pick one. Um, I'm going into areas that are not just straight tech. I'm mm-hmm. um, in medical device and manufactured products, some consumer stuff, and shipping and logistics, which is the newest uh, thing that I've been involved with. Um, this week will be a year. And so from my perspective, the go-to-market strategy and testing out all the things that have worked from – you know, I've had a couple of acquisitions and uh, and a couple of IPOs and and had some success prior. You know, Constant Contact's the one everyone mm-hmm. knows. But the point is, I I love testing these things that I go around speaking about in other markets, and so it's led to me starting some things with others. So mm-hmm. so I'm picking some really really bright folks in in specific areas and overlaying in the go to market part. To mm-hmm. your point, you know, a couple of developers, a couple of engineers. You know, true engineers of manufacturing mm-hmm. and medical device, and and just overlaying in the kind of that go-to-market perspective, mm-hmm. and and having the vision toward scale and strategic partnerships, and just the general go-to-market. Yeah. So, how do you manage your time splitting between the four different companies that you're involved in, and then speaking and that sure. kind of thing? How do, how do you? Yeah. Do that? So, I'll talk about the one um, that I'm spending my all my time on mm-hmm. is um, PointToPointGlobal.com, which with mm-hmm. a two point two point global.com. And it's international shipping and logistics, so it's managing cross-border shipments. So Mm -hmm. imagine uh, it started with print and then in the industry, and then it moved to parcels or packages for e-commerce retail. And so there's three other managing partners. One had pioneered doing cross-border mail. Mm -hmm. So U.S.-based publishers, uh, magazines, books, et cetera, taking stuff from the U.S. and shipping it to 220 countries Mm -hmm. and making sure it got there in one piece to the recipient. That went on to Parcel, which they started, and today's solution for UPS is called iParcel, which was the my co-founder and managing partner. Those were his companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was an amazing team that had been there and done that, and so I came in and, and brought someone else with me on the to really manage the go-to-market. They were very successful for many years with several companies and just never overlaid in that go-to-market mm-hmm. strategy and you know, really looking at the brand and looking at the messaging and the marketing and which has really helped elevate us early. So it's only been a year, but it allowed uh, everyone to say to us, well, you know, you've been along, around for a long time. You know, you seem like you, you know, mm-hmm. you guys are real. And they had the reputation and the relationships with all the top e-commerce retailers. 
and they have all the stuff that's needed to go cross-border, you know, with all the hops that are required to get it from somewhere here, you know, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to the officer home front door. So they have that all down. And so I was fortunate to jump in uh, in a strategy that really elevated us in an industry that's somewhat dry Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily leaning toward creative. Right. So if anyone goes to pointtopointglobal.com and you'll get a feel for uh, for some of the fun we're having uh-huh. and getting credit for. Now, are the customers the direct people who are shipping? Yeah, so there's two customers. The partner, if you will, would be the e-commerce retailer. Mm-hmm. And then the customer would be the consumer that's sitting at a computer internationally coming to U.S. sites and buying. Yeah. And so we're picking up the packages here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and then getting them to the home or office yeah. internationally. So what value does Point to Point Global offer over like the e-commerce company just saying, oh, we ship with UPS? Sure. We're what we call asset light, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have anything. We don't have trucks. We don't have all these other things that we would have to use. So we have the flexibility to be the air traffic control. So we're sitting in the middle and deciding who's first mile carrier, last mile carrier, what hops are we going in between? And we have the smartest in the industry to be able to look at that and say, the path to go from A to B isn't necessarily straight through like a normal channel. We might do an extra hop, which saves additional funds or gets it there in a better way than it would mm-hmm. normally. And so we could be more effective, more responsive. There's uh, more actionable insights and data, the way we're doing things. And then of course, could be more cost effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's how you're spending most of your time? The other ones that I've started have been around for three or four years. Mm-hmm. So typically, I'll, I'll go in and assist with the go-to-market, yep. really build that up, and then put others on it, and then kind of step out. So, yeah. so I don't have day-to-day responsibilities with mm-hmm. any of them. The main one today, this, as I said, this week will be a year, has been on mm-hmm. the go-to-market, building everything out and working with the team to help do anything that will you know, help drive our success yeah. at Point to Point Global. Yeah. That's 100% of my time. That's my day job. I like to say my night job is, you know, all the stuff that I'm doing between speaking mm-hmm. and, you know, looking at other investment opportunities for myself or through through G20 Ventures. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all of that. Thank you for coming in. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And if people want to follow along or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Sure. So fortunately, being a early adopter of all the tools and testing them, it's my name at any tool. So A-L-E-C-S-T-E-R-N. So Alex Stern at... LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, etc. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me, Alec. Thanks for having me. And see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.